Where To Next Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. Hi there, I'm Angelica, your host and producer, and welcome aboard to our monthly podcast, Where To Next, brought to you by the Office of International Safety and Security here at Kennesaw State University. In this space, we talk about all things student travel, from what to pack to navigating identity while abroad. So fasten your seatbelts, all of you globetrotters and adventure seekers, as we prepare for takeoff. Hello and welcome listeners. It's great to have you tuning in. I have my co-host with me today, Erin Rash. Hey Erin, how you doing? I am doing so well. Thank you for asking and I'm ready and excited to dive into today's topic. Definitely agree. I'm looking forward to our conversation today because it's a necessary topic in the world of travel. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And that topic is money, managing your finances while traveling, even before you start traveling honestly. And joining us in this conversation today is one of our fellow global affairs colleagues, Renee Kokozaki. Hey, Renee. Hello, ladies. Renee is our business operations manager here at the Division of Global Affairs. Renee, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, yes. Okay, so let us begin Operation Protect the Piggy Bank. (laughs) Let's first get a better idea of how funds are actually used for study abroad programs and what students and travelers are paying for. Now, each program has their own cost and it varies from the nature of the program and the itinerary. And Renee, I know that you've also looked at budgets for a program uh, and everything that goes into budgeting for a program, but can you give us kind of a play-by-play of what all goes into a budget? Of course, Um, most of the time they're very similar. It depends of course upon your destination and how much pretty much the cost of living is there. So if you go to France, you're probably going to be paying way more than if you're going somewhere less expensive, like perhaps Costa Rica. So you have to keep that in mind too. But um, I think the biggest change now that people need to be aware of is that because of some policy changes since COVID decided to visit us, Mm -hmm. that the university will no longer be booking airfare for students. So they will be doing that on their own, which gives you a lot more wiggle room and finances because you can pick a ticket closer to what you can afford rather than have it included in what you pay for the overall trip. Um, The other things that usually go into the budget are anything administrative, like if you're going to see museums or take tours, there's also transportation costs other than the airfare. So like if you take a bus or ground transportation while you're on the ground, they have to figure in costs like that. Beyond that, it uh, really, It really depends on what the faculty member decides to include in the trip. So everything is very clear though for the Kennesaw State faculty-led programs. Everything's actually there laid out for you to see what your cost would be. So if you ever have any questions about it, if you're not comfortable speaking to the faculty member, which I hope you would be, you also have the program coordinator here in Division of Global Affairs and they always have that information ready and available to share with you. 
And how about for our um, travelers who are going on exchange programs, typically what sort of things should they be looking for and should they be budgeting for, especially given that they're going to be going for a longer period of time, usually than our, our faculty-led programs? Right. That's way more difficult <laughs> to talk about because uh, our exchange programs are much more individualized. It depends on the kind of MOU or the memorandum of understanding between, between Kennesaw State and the host institution in the other country. Um, it's a little bit easier if it's through the International Student Exchange Program, ISEP, because that's more standardized. But for the other individual ones that we have MOUs with, it's a little bit more difficult to say. But I would think that just being prepared to study for yourself, kind of to get an idea of like, well, if I'm going to go do an exchange in Korea, about how much money will I need for like food cost? Is my lodging included? Do I have to worry about that? What is the typical transportation? You can do a lot of research on your own beforehand. And of course, we do have program coordinators for the exchanges as well and they have a much better idea of what you need to look out for in terms of finances. That's fantastic. That's really helpful that they'll, they'll sit there and they'll help you understand kind of what to look out for mm -hmm. and what to um, keep in mind, you know, in advance of your travel so that you can figure out what works for you and how far in advance you need to be thinking. Yes. And a lot of them have actually been exchange students themselves and so they can give you some practical experience. I myself included actually yes. went to Korea. Um, yeah. So if you have any questions, we are definitely here to answer your questions. <laughs> right. If you plan to do an exchange trip to Korea, please contact Angelica. Right? <laughs> definitely get all the information you can. Uh, I mean, most of us in global affairs, we have that international experience. So if you have a place that in mind that you're wanting to go to, but you don't know how much to bring or how much to plan to spend, contact us. We love talking about it. Right. I'm also curious, how does tuition work? Mm -hmm. uh, that is, that's a sticky one too with exchanges. Uh, for the most part, um, an exchange is exactly that. So our students would pay our tuition and then go out to the other institution and their tuition pays for that student coming in. So the student who's coming in, their tuition at the host institution pays for that student that we're getting. So it's it's definitely supposed to work as an exchange so that you have, you know, each student is supporting the other. Um, some don't obviously work like that because of MOUs and different agreements, but the intent is usually that each student supports the other. So it's one in, one out is the so best case scenario. Right, so there's reciprocity there. Is right. that the same with our faculty-led programs? How, how does that work then? Now, faculty-led tuition, uh, you pay a set tuition to education abroad, so we have our own different tuition. It's lower, actually, I believe, still, unless they change it between now and when somebody listens to this. It's a, it's a little bit lower than the standard tuition, but it pays in, and then what that usually goes to, that tuition pays for the faculty pay, so the faculty who leads the program gets paid out of that pool of funding. And also if there's anything else that comes up, like sometimes if an emergency comes up, we have different ways of paying for it. So nobody's left high and dry. And if there's any money left in that account, we can also pay for it, anything that comes up for that. So any tuition goes 100% to support the education abroad programs. Okay. And that leads me to my next question as far as tuition goes, financial aid. 
and financial aid disbursements. The dates of the financial aid disbursements, how's the relationship between those dates and then also the dates of the program payment deadlines? Right. Um, Normally, we're in close contact with financial aid, especially the PCs, the program coordinators. So if I throw a PC out, it means program coordinators. But the PCs um, and our director for education abroad uh, talk a lot to financial aid just for that very reason, because we need to know when those disbursements come out. Um, There are some programs, the only ones who are really affected are the ones whose dates may kind of overlap payment deadlines. And that's when you would really have to watch it. Otherwise, if it's towards the middle or the end of a semester, then you should be good. There should be no problems or questions. But again, we try to keep on top of it. Also, um, for students who are looking for scholarships, the best resource you have are RPCs because they have a whole list of where you can go and what you need to do in order to apply for those scholarships and uh, meet eligibility requirements. Nice. Okay. And this is actually a really good time for a plug for a future episode that we'll be having more of like a, an add-on episode, but we will be talking about scholarships and grants from Fulbright to Rhodes and gap year experiences. So we will be talking about that. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Renee. You're very welcome because that's usually the number one question. Can I get somebody else to pay for this experience for me? Yes. Right. (laughs) I'm still asking that now. (laughs) I know I have yet to go. So yeah, I'm looking for somebody to pay for me to go as well. They are out there. So students, travelers definitely search for them. We have an office dedicated for that which we will be talking about. Um, But I also wanted to talk about some other conventional ways to save money and pay for your study abroad program, part-time jobs, Mm -hmm. federal work study. That's always a classic. Um, Right. Yeah. I think most, a lot of our students have actually gotten a first or second part-time job specifically to save up for their study abroad experiences. I will say with the advent of crowdfunding and and source funding and things like um, uh, GoFundMe, those have been really popular of late. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some fantastic ideas coming out of um, specifically, I think the Mebus program, they've had a lot of success with um, students being very creative and coming up with innovative projects um, that either make use of those platforms or make use of social media in some way to get the word out, as well as I think they've done things like um, bake sales and concerts and getting creative to to self-fund your own travel experiences not only just I think very empowering and and gives you more of a sense of value out of your experience knowing that you work so hard for it but I think those are definitely skill sets that you can market later on and Mm -hmm. show to prospective employers very true social media has been a real game changer how about student loans? How does oh, that yeah. work with um, studying, financing study abroad? Yeah, that's a very good question. I have a very strong, that's more of a financial aid question than a Renee Kokosaki question, but I have a very strong feeling that you would have to go the private loan route, which, in, you know, it depends on who you go with. Sometimes you're able to get a good loan for a very low interest rate and pay it off very quickly because when you're looking at we try to lower our cost as much as possible for our study abroad programs. So hopefully you're not looking at something that's gonna keep you in debt for like three or five years. But um, 
Yeah, you would really have to, I would suggest if you're going to look at that, think like at the worst case scenario, how much money do you think you're going to need? You know, not just the cost of the program itself, but like we were speaking about earlier, um, some programs provide some meals and some programs do not provide meals. Um, and you're going to have to figure out what you're going to need for that and then just kind of go shop around and see you know, what would be the best opportunity to do that. I think a lot of people mostly shy away from getting another loan though. Mm -hmm. And they try to do all those other options like scholarships, another job, <laughs> you know, cause nobody wants to get more in debt. Even if it is a great like life-changing experience in another country, you don't necessarily want to be facing another loan to pay off once you graduate. So is there a specific timeline that students should have in mind when they're planning and budgeting? Like, okay, I want to have this money by this date besides mm -hmm. having the program deadlines. Right. Um, just the program deadlines, of course, are the most important because you definitely don't want to miss those. Then you miss out on the entire opportunity itself. But I would say trying to know in your head that by the time that first payment's done, that you know for sure you're going to have the entire payment ready by the end. So I would say the 50-50 probably plan would be best, like see if you can get 50% by the time the first payment's due and then have the rest. Um, trying to think of any other way to do that. I'm sure it's very individualized depending on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But the most prepared, the better prepared you can be at the beginning, of course, you know, that's always the way to go. I completely agree. When I was studying a few years back, I, I went on a couple of study abroad programs and each were kind of different in nature. But I remember with one program, I had time to save, but it was definitely nearing the crunch time, you know, mm -hmm. and I felt the stress of it. But I was luckily able to get everything in by midnight hour. But yeah. then, <laughs> then there was the other program that I did not go on and I had paid the first payment, but I could not get the second payment mm -hmm. and I couldn't get the first payment back. Right. Oh no. Oof. Yes. Yeah. So, we try to always make our students whole, but you're right. Sometimes it's just not possible depending mm -hmm. on when certain things have to be paid out for the trip. Like there's always going to be those upfront costs and you know, you have to put money down, especially if you're working with a travel agency, which actually makes things simpler for everyone if we're working through a third party. But that also means that the university has to put up non-refundable money <laughs> at the beginning, yes. which is not fun for any of us, for the students or for the university. So you're right. You do have to worry about that. Um, but also, it just reminded me, I've had some like horror stories from faculty who've come back about students who just didn't plan to pay for the meals that they weren't provided. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I feel so horrible because sometimes faculty are put into a position of, well, I'm not supposed to be spending any extra money, but paying out of pocket for their own students so they don't starve. Right. And then there's been some students who got really like savvy to what was going on. And so if they had the breakfast buffet at the hotel mm -hmm. they were pocketing all the extra bananas and apples and things that they could eat throughout the rest of the day after their free breakfast so don't put yourself in that position is a very good way to think like please have at least enough to get a small meal yes. <laughs> have, have yeah, that don't put yourself out of food right yeah <laughs> definitely don't put yourself in a bad position where you know you're potentially starving in a foreign country. I mean, travel is going to be stressful anyway. Don't make it financially hard as well, mm -hmm. if at all possible. 
now I'm going to ask a question that we can cut if you would like, but <laughs> since, <laughs> since you, since you did mention the, um, out of pocket, um, uh, you know, upfront costs and potential right. for non-reimbursement in the event that there is an emergency situation or there's some sort of, somehow the university steps in, intervenes and cancels the program. Mm -hmm. Will that impact a student who's already made payments? Our, well, our first priority is always the well-being of the students, and that means for their finances as well. So I can tell you with full authority, thanks to, again, COVID, that if anything happens and your trip is canceled, we do like 100%. We try to make the student whole. So whatever you've put into the program, we will refund to you. The only difference, of course, is if you just get cold feet. So say we're already past that first payment deadline and things have been paid and the trip is definitely going and everybody's been depending on your contribution to help, right? Because it's a communal effort to get there. That's the reason why everybody has to chip in. So if you decide, well, maybe I'm not really that ready to go to Japan, you know, <laughs> um, and you've already made some deadlines, you know, passed some deadlines and paid in some money, we probably can get you some of it, but we cannot guarantee the full amount because that money is supporting your fellow students who are still going. Yeah. So, so it's that's recoverable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of it may be recoverable, but some of it may just be gone. Mm -hmm. So be sure that you're going to be brave and go through with it too before you start making those payments because you don't want to, you know, chip yourself out of that money. Learn from Angelica's experience with that yes. first payment she couldn't get back. <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> School of hard knocks. Yes. Right. I also wanted to talk about currency and that can, sometimes it could be pretty easy. Um, other times it's it's that meme where that woman mm -hmm. is doing like all the math in her head and, you know, everything is going on around her. But as far as calculating currency, is there a particular website or resource that you all would recommend as far as monitoring the foreign exchange rate? Right. So if you want to continue and keep with what the university uses, um, our fiscal services office tells us to use Awanda. So eight. OANDA.com, Awanda. So you run an Awanda report and you can put in the dates, like anything from today through the past, it'll tell you what the currency rate is. Of course, it doesn't have a crystal ball and it doesn't know the future, but you can get a kind of an idea of what the current rates are and figure out like how much dollars to euros or dollars to yen or whatever you need from that report. And it's helpful to use that same report because that's what the faculty are going to have to use when they do their exchange rates. I know with our banks and credit unions, sometimes, sometimes they have that particular currency available. Mm -hmm. um, and I recommend just getting with your bank or your local credit union just to plan that out and make mm -hmm. sure you have that, um, that money, that currency available to you. But are there any other options? Um, there are all sorts of ways to look at exchange rates out there, but I think yours about the banks is probably the best one because if you, of course your money is going to be going through your financial institution, so you need to know what, how they view it. If you're just going to try to figure out what, the, like what the faculty is looking at too, I would run Owanda as a secondary follow-up just to kind of see what the differential may be, but you don't have to do that unless you're like an accounting major and this is something that you're really wedded to, <laughs> to make sure you completely understand everything. 
Um, what I would say to be aware of too, and you'll probably, you'll need to talk to your faculty and also your PC about it. It depends on where you're going, what your options are and how you're allowed to pay. If you go to Europe and you wanna use your credit card the entire time just to make things easier, you can absolutely do that. But if you're going to a country in West Africa, you may or may not have that option depending on your location. You may have to bring cash, which means you have to really worry about the currency. So it just depends on which program you're going to. And I would always like well in advance, once you've decided where you want to go, make sure you understand what you're looking at in terms of how you're allowed to spend money while you're abroad. And sort of um, piggybacking off that, I would say if you're having those initial conversations with your financial institution, ask if they have any partner banks with any institution in the host country that you're traveling to. Because if for whatever reason you wanted to, let's say, withdraw money from an ATM or you needed to go in and, and speak with someone, sometimes they can waive certain transaction fees because of the relationships that they have cultivated between your institution and the foreign institution. That's very true, Miss Risk Manager. <laughs> <laughs> because that's something else to be aware of. The ATM uh, fees associated with pulling out cash can be very high. It adds um, up. Yeah, so definitely keep that in mind as well. So we will continue talking about ATM fees, transfer fees, and all of that good stuff right after this break. Hello, this is Angelica from the Office of International Safety and Security. I want to take this opportunity to highlight one unit that we work closely with and that we've actually invited here on the show twice. That unit is the Education Abroad Office here at KSU. Within that unit are program coordinators. If you have questions about which education abroad program is right for you, what to expect if it's your first time traveling, or how to fit studying abroad into your graduation track, the education abroad program coordinators offer advising so you can map out your next steps. From faculty-led programs to more independent programs such as exchanges or internships, to even virtual programs. You can find an international opportunity that speaks to you and your career and life trajectory. Stop by the Education Abroad office or visit our website in the description link to find more information. We can't wait to see you. And we are back. Thank you so much for listening, listeners. Again, we have with us Renee Kokozaki, Business Operations Manager here at Global Affairs, and also Aaron and I with Office of International Safety and Security. So before the break, we were talking about credit cards, and I wanted to you know, follow that wave and continue to talk about credit cards and also the difference between credit cards and debit cards, mainly because of the reason of fraud. It's good to have both, best of both worlds. And as far as debit cards, you know you have you have that money. It's in your bank account. But I will recommend traveling with a credit card, mainly because it's easier to track payments and also cancel payments and cancel the card should something happen. If, for example, you are a victim of ATM skimming, which we can define further. <laughs> 
Well, I don't know really much about the technology behind skimming, but basically it's uh, sometimes people will tamper with ATMs um, so that they can capture information from your card or so that they can then withdraw you know, money from your account after you use it. Um, there are, I think, also devices that can now use RFID technology to get your card information just by proximity. So that's why they may think make things like wallets that have RFID protection um, sort of uh, helps wow. encrypt the uh, card or protect the card from having that information um, sort of stolen uh, through the, I guess, radio frequencies. So yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying about if you can use the credit card versus the debit card for your everyday purchases, if that's how you prefer to operate, if you're going to a location where you can use a credit card for transactions, then my simple recommendation would be to have your credit card and your debit card both while you travel, but keep your debit card secure in your hotel room and your dorm, you know, if it's in this, if there's a safe at the, at the place that you're traveling, um, keep it in a very secure location and don't use that primarily for your transactions as you're going about your day to day. Keep that in case you need to actually pull out money and have cash with you. And um, if you are going to a location that does not have, you know, credit card readers and things like that, then that's when you would want to um, bring your debit card with you and, you know, at the front end, maybe withdraw a whole bunch of currency when you're at the airport and keep that with you, but still keep your money separated. Don't keep all of it in the same place and keep your, your card elsewhere, you know, separate in your room or in your safe, wherever you have that's secure enough that you can, um, ref, you know, go back to if you need it, but not carry it with you. So it's subject to being lost. It's subject to being, you know, victim of fraud, things of that nature. And then when you're getting that money, withdrawing that money from an ATM, um, always make sure that you are using a ATM that's in a very well-lit public area. You don't want to be withdrawing money at night in the dark, you know, someplace that's especially like back alley, you know, stereotypical, right. <laughs> um, sketchy location. And if you can have someone like a buddy with you to kind of serve as a buffer, even better, because you should be traveling with a buddy. Everything's more fun with a buddy. Um, but just make sure when you're going to the ATM to withdraw your money that you are in some way trying to make it difficult for anyone who is yes. passing by to see any of the uh, information that you are inputting. And, um, you know, if you do suspect that someone's getting a little too close, maybe just uh, wait a minute before trying to withdraw your money. So those would be some of my basic tips. And then, of course, if you're traveling to certain locations, there may be additional considerations that you want to um, engage in. And that's part of that whole research on the front end and conversations with our office if you have any questions. Um, so we'd be happy to help you with that. Yes. Right. I just have one thing to add to you because it's something that I'm bad about remembering. Before you travel, get in touch with your bank and your credit card issuer to let them know, because the last thing you want is for them to be try to be really helpful to you and say, no, I'm not going to process this payment in Spain, but you're in Spain. Right. That Absolutely. happened to me. That was a horror story. Uh, so quick story time. Uh, I was living in Korea, but it was vacation, winter vacation. And I decided to go on to Thailand, but I did not let my bank know. 
and I could not use my debit card. It was just locked. Thankfully, I was traveling with a buddy and I also had my credit card, which I could use in certain places, but we also went to more rural areas, which you, you can't use a credit card then. Like you said, Renee, contact your bank. You don't want to get locked out, especially if you are not in a place that accepts credit card. Very good advice. Absolutely. I've, I've been <laughs> not quite guilty of it, but almost. I've been at the airport about to board when it hits me. Oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to do that. Another thing to be wary of, and sometimes you can't really avoid this because it depends on the type of machine, ATM machine that you find. Try to avoid the ones that completely eat your card. One, because it's it's just frightening to see your card disappear. <laughs> but also you don't know if you're going to get it back. And that can also delay your trip. I will say if you do find yourself in a situation where you are stuck without funds, without access to a card, um, you're probably, your best bet is to see if you can contact someone at home and see if they can Western Union use some mm -hmm. funding until you get, you know, a replacement card because it can take several days to get that sent to you. And oftentimes your bank may just be sending it directly to your primary address. They're not going to necessarily send it to you overseas unless let's say you're studying abroad for a period of time, like a semester or something like that. Um, so that would just be uh, something to keep on, on the back of your mind that, you know, if you do get into that situation, um, definitely you can hope that you're with a buddy and they can loan you a little <laughs> bit of money and, and float you until, you know, you get in touch with, you know, your parents, your partner, sibling, someone back home who can sort of help you out until, you know, you get a little more solvent. Erin, you mentioned before uh, about going to well-lit ATM areas. Also be wary of uh, fake ATMs because they're out there, especially in the tourist areas. What they could look like, it it varies, but I would recommend just going to either the partner bank that we were discussing earlier or looking up the reputable banks within that country and just going to that actual bank inside to their ATM. That way you know that this is an actual ATM machine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. A lot of times if you go to, if you find that partner institution, they'll have like right at the side of, of the bank, they'll have this special little entrance um, you can go into just to access the ATM. So even if it's after hours for the bank, you can still get access to the ATM. And usually it's a very, you know, small room or something that limits the number of people that's in there. So it provides a little additional security. So definitely appreciate that. Thank you for adding that. Yes. Another tip. I feel like now I'm just like bringing out tips all galore, but you know, our listeners could use it. Uh, one thing that I noticed, I can always tell a traveler or a foreigner when I'm abroad, especially if the ATM speaks back to you and it speaks to you in English. If you select the English option, that's like a telltale sign to everyone like, oh, they're not from here. Not saying that you need to memorize all of the financial language within that country. Uh, sometimes, you know, you don't have time for that, but it would be nice to maybe memorize a couple of vocabulary words pertaining to that jargon finances like withdraw or deposit, cash, card, how much, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And then once you've withdrawn that money, 
Um, you also want to be aware of what the currency is, just what it looks like, what it feels like, um, what the difference between the, the various coins are, or the various banknotes are, um, especially this is very true if you're going to a location that has a dual currency system. There aren't many of those out there. But for instance, let's say you're going to Cuba. Um, there are two different systems that you're you're working with and knowing what the exchange rate is and, and knowing which one to use it in certain circumstances. Um, when are you using your pesos and when are you using your kook? Um, and yeah, just make sure, again, understand what the, the different um, coins are so that if you're paying for something, when you get change back, you're getting the appropriate change and you're not being shortchanged. Uh, I would say that's a pretty, pretty important one. Do you all have any recommendations on how to actually carry cash if you're not carrying card, but is there a safe way to carry cash besides a wallet or how to divvy things up? I mean, I usually, when I travel, I have what I call a mugger's wallet, which is like a small little, um, kind of like a coin purse or a small little wallet that I'll put what I need for the day. And then maybe I'll put a little extra if I, you know, you can have sometimes those little packs that they have for, for travelers that have like your passport and like a little um, wallet for some money that you put under, you know, your, your coat or your, your shirt or something. Um, if you wanted to wear something like that, you could put some money in there. I know people who put um, money uh, in their shoes even to keep it safe. Um, but I would say wherever you bring, you know, whatever you're bringing, don't bring a whole lot with you. Make sure that you are just taking kind of what you think or anticipate that you'll need for that period of time, whatever that means to you. For some people, that might mean $20. For some people, they may want to spend more money. They may have access to more funds. It might be more than that. Um, but keep the bulk of your funds back in, you know, your, your luggage and your hotel room and your dorm room and your, um, wherever it is in your safe, um, where it's, you know, you're less likely to lose it. You're less likely to be a victim of, you know, some sort of a, um, you know, mugging or a, um, you know, a scam where someone slashes your book bag and all your contents come out or something like that. Nice, nice. We were talking about exchange programs before the break, way before the break, but I wanted to speak to our exchange program population as far as opening bank accounts. And it, though it depends on each country, sometimes if you're staying over there for three months, over three months, over four months, it might be wise just to open up a bank account while you're there. That way you don't really have to deal with those transfer fees um, and exchange rates. Sometimes opening a bank account is free. It, again, it depends on the bank. It depends on the country that you're in. So do your research as far as that goes. But they will supply you with a card that you can use. That way you don't need to worry about dealing with your bank account, transfer, transferring funds, all the math that goes along with the money and traveling. But it's definitely more helpful if you have a bank in the country that you're going to be in for quite some time. Speaking of being in a country for quite some time, what are some tips or strategies that um, you guys have for budgeting and also just tracking how you're doing with your finances while you're abroad? <laughs> That's always a good question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I have gone through seasons where I've saved a lot while I was abroad. I've gone through seasons where I'm just looking at my bank account and like, wow, where did my money go? Who's spending my money? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but I would say 
And if you're in a situation where you have your lodging and you're living independently, see how much, not in the first month, because the first month you're kind of adjusting, you're getting everything that you need, food. If you need furniture, you're getting furniture or maybe uh, things for your bedroom, like a comforter, lamps, all of that. Of course, the first month is going to be more expensive, kind of like when you're moving here in the US. So see about like the second month, how much are you spending on food, on the necessities? So food, travel, uh, if it's books or something like that, entertainment. So get an idea of what you're spending. Track all of it. Track everything that you're spending. And you can do that within your bank app or you can do it the old fashioned way, just keeping a pen and paper. There are apps for that. Like I think it's the Mint app maybe, but see what all is going out of your bank account and then see what you can live without. What do you need and what do you want? And are there certain weekends that you can splurge and use the money for what you want? That way you can see and get a better idea of what's coming in and out, mostly what's coming out, um, unless you're getting a part-time job. <laughs> um, but yeah, d- sit yourself down. It's not fun. Well, some people find it fun, but for me, I just had to go to a cafe, get some coffee again, coffee budget. I incorporate that into the budget as well. And I just, yeah, I had to sit myself down and see what I was spending. And that way I won't be left without anything when I get back to the U.S. or I won't have to figure out, okay, I need to get rid of this so I can pay this bill, pay this phone bill or what have you. Yeah, that's my recommendation. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much all you can do, I think, because you do have to make yourself sit down and track your spending and prioritize your needs. And you're right, it's not fun. It's being an adult and being an adult is never fun, (laughs) but if you're going to be responsible for yourself, you know, it's a good skill set to have. So maybe practice doing that before you go. Like you're used to your US dollar currency and you're used to what things cost over here. Kind of get an idea of what you spend over here before you go over there and see what you can live with and what you can live without. I like that idea. I think kind of adding to that, I would also say while the first um, especially if you're going for a long term, while the first you know month or first adjustment period comes with a lot of uh, big ticket items, um, but even if you're if you're going for short term, I would say that at the very beginning, potentially just focus on what you need, not what what you want, and save your discretionary spending until you really get that understanding of what things do cost and how much you're going to need day to day. And then, um, as you mentioned, Angelica, then you can see if you have money for that big weekend blowout, or if you have um, extra funds to go buy that um, high-end souvenir to bring back with you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Souvenirs. Thank you so much, Erin. <laughs> Souvenirs. Don't get caught in the souvenir trap. <laughs> They're fun uh, and they look nice and pretty and people appreciate them when you get back. But if you have the money to splurge on souvenirs, especially in the more touristy areas, go ahead, do it. It, It's your funds. Um, But if you're looking to go on the budget side, on the least expensive side, there are creative ways that you can pursue in order to get uh, souvenirs. So you don't have to get like the most expensive thing at the airport. Don't buy things at the airport, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you can get classic things, postcards or posters. Uh, if you have a music lover in your family or amongst your friends, 
see if you can go to the local music scene and get a poster from a band or if maybe you can get a cooking book what of all would you recommend there are ways to get creative I love sending postcards and mailing them to people from abroad and and maybe that's just an old-fashioned thing but um that's definitely something I always do with like family members and and close friends and um personally for me I I and this is my my little vice is I love to get those Starbucks mugs from every country I go to. Yes. So I always have to budget for, I'm like, okay, I must have this one chance to go to Starbucks at some point and get my special Starbucks mug if I don't already have that particular part of the collection yet. Yeah. And also like not even money wise, but everybody knows you have to think about your luggage and hauling it all back anyway. So make sure it's not something that you can't like just poke in between your clothes or, you know, that you can fit in. So yeah, keep that in mind. And are you going to cry if it breaks? Like if it, if you come back and you open it up and your Starbucks mug is shattered, yes. I mean, is your soul going to be crushed? So remember that. I will, I will say I usually pack a, another bag in my bag that I'll use when I come back as my carry-on. And that's where the Starbucks mug goes. There you go. See, you're treating it as gently as it needs. Good job. Nice. It's precious. <laughs> And also be aware of the weight of your bags because it, mm. it happens. You'll get so many souvenirs and you're like, okay, I'm good to go. And you get to the airport and you either have to take things out or you have to pay that extra fee. Right. And you don't want to be in that situation. It's yeah. not fun. Or if you have a long way to walk to get to your transportation. Oh yeah. And you're lugging your stuff with you. That's not always fun. fun. Sounds yeah. like we need to do a whole nother episode just on yeah. packing tips. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What to like do, use what the roll method, do. right? <laughs> yeah, squish it in. Does this spark joy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, Renee, you got to come back. We got to do a packing yes. episode, <laughs> part two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing with, but not really finances, but since we're on the packing trip, uh, be careful of what you can bring in back into the U.S. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine brought back uh, a machete, like a machete. Mm-hmm. And how he got through the airport, I don't know, because they definitely check. But if he didn't, mm-hmm. the consequences of that, you know. Right. So Absolutely. be careful of what you bring back. Yes. And just because it's legal in that country does not mean it's legal to bring it back into the United States. And we have students that, you know, they'll go to places where things like, you know, ayahuasca and other, you know, types of herbs and things are, are perfectly fine. And, and they'll have teas and things like that, that are just considered you know, beverages or even medicine, you know, the, that's what you do when you're in um, a high altitude location to combat, you know, potential altitude sickness. Um, and they'll want to bring that back, not really realizing that those are um, unfortunately kind of contraband when entering customs. So always double check, you know, what you can and cannot bring in um, when you're traveling back. Yes. Okay. So we've definitely traveled with this conversation. Uh, (laughs) It's been a good conversation though. I feel like hopefully the listeners will take a lot of this information and these tips and tricks and use them, but we will come to a close. Renee, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure talking with you. 
Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. I hope everybody gets a lot out of it. Hopefully we were helpful. I enjoyed <laughs> the packing tips. Yes. <laughs> always good to know, even if you travel domestically, you need to know about that. Of course, of course. And listeners, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, check out some of our past episodes. And if you think they're pretty interesting, click that like button and don't forget to subscribe and follow us so that you can get all the updates for when a new episode drops. We hope you enjoyed this talk. And if you did, feel free to share with friends and family so that we all can talk more about where to next.